you know what it feels like to be discriminated against. And you know what it feels like to be like, there's a group of guys walking towards me. Are they going to say anything about my appearance? Do I have to, like, where do I look? Do I look straight ahead? Do I look on the ground? Do I look to the side? Do I cross the street? Right? It's like, so the tension is there and you feel it and it is very real. And so I think that's absolutely like right to tap into that because it's just like, women and people who pass for women of the world unites like you know the struggle it is very very hard hey everyone welcome back to another podcast episode today i have my dear friend leslie who is like one of the smartest and most well-spoken people I know. And if you know me, that's like the highest, one of the highest compliments I can pay somebody. So Leslie, thanks for being here. Yes. Thank you for having me and for those nice words. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, now I can't say like or um, the way I normally do. Not at all. Not at all. It's totally fine. I say those things all the time. (laughs) But I think people will know what I mean when we start talking. So the first thing I wanted to start with, because I feel like this is very on brand for you, and I just wanted to start off on a broad note, is just like activism in general. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know, like, what was your path to becoming the activist that you are now? And you can give Mm -hmm. a little bit of like a story of like your your upbringing and stuff like that, Um, because I think coming from similar-ish backgrounds, like you're somebody I look up to very much in terms of activism, and I'm curious to, to how you got there. Yeah, okay, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I, think it's, I think it's two-pronged in terms of the kind of activism and organize, organizing that we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks as it relates to the movement for Black Lives, that very much started this year. But I think in terms of the work that I've always been doing, in terms of being someone who's focused very intently on climate change and social impact, that actually started when I was really young. I remember um, when I was in fourth grade, uh, growing up in Southern California, it's like we're always in a drought and we always had these assemblies that were like, reduce, reuse, and recycle. And so I was learning that at school. And then for my parents, like, being immigrants and coming here, they were very cost conscious. And so we recycled at home and we reused things and we composted things. And so it was just that coupled with what I was learning at school kind of just clicked in my mind. And I was like, yes, the environment and our resources are finite. We gotta take care of it. Everybody knows this, cool. And I remember very distinct moments throughout elementary school when I realized that not everybody felt the same way. One was I remember going to a sleepover with some of my friends and someone left the water on while they were brushing their teeth. And I was like, we literally had an assembly. (laughs) What are you doing? And then I also remember um, I was carpooling to school with some friends once and we were talking about the Bush Gore election as as like fucking nine year olds. Wow. but we were talking about it and we, people were just saying like, oh, who would you vote for? And then someone in the front seat said Bush. And I was like, I would vote for Al Gore because he cares about the environment. I very distinctly remember that. And then <laughs> the funniest story 
is I was shopping with my mom at Whole Foods in Pasadena and uh, we were checking out and the bagger, he, he's, you know, gathering all of our groceries. And then, so he looks over and he says, do you want paper or plastic? So this was that long ago that Whole Foods was still using plastic. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I looked at him and I said, paper, obviously. And he goes, oh, like, do you want to wrap your books? Like, do you need it for school? And I said, no, because it's better for the environment. Like, <laughs> of course. Like, why would you even ask? <laughs> and so I think just like all of those instances kind of triangulated in, within me at a very young age, which is why I've always wanted to work in climate because I just, it was, it was interesting for me to understand that there are different, even though we could come from the same background, we could get the same input, people will still, the way people behave will be different. Will be different. So how do you try to address those behavioral differences? Do you, do you do it from a policy perspective? Do you do it from a consumer perspective? Do you work the private sector? Is it public sector? Is it something in the middle? And so that was, I think that was my path to just ending up in consulting also, which was, is working with NGOs on policy the answer? And now that I um, am no longer working a full-time job, the intent for this year was, let me try to understand what it's like to work from the bottom up. Because I've done a lot of the top down. I've done the policy, I've worked with large foundations. What is it like to be on the ground pushing this work when sometimes activists and organizers are at odds with policymakers. So that's how I got started with it this year. It also coincided with the 2020 presidential elections, which um, in 2016, I was still at Cambridge, so I couldn't do any campaigning. Mm-hmm. I was like Bernie from afar and <laughs> like absentee voted in the primaries and they came back and voted for Hillary. So this year was, uh, I made more of an effort to try to get into that. Yeah. So that's, that's the backstory of how I got here. I do want to differentiate between, because you use the term activism, and I think within the world that I have been in, which is the political organizing world for electoral policies, within these circles, we tend to call it organizing because activism calls to mind something that's very big and flashy like like demonstrations protests rallies banner drops you occupy a street there's a march something and organizing um is a less sexy term but it really encompasses more of the work that is entailed in trying to push for change because it's never going to be a one-off action. It's never just going to be, we do this march and then something will change. And then we pat ourselves on the back because that's it, right? Because politicians are experts at co-opting the language of social justice movement and saying, we did something, look at this website, we're really good at using graphics and we made this plan. And it's good at diverting people's attention away from that, from the issue at hand. But you always have to try to ask yourself, okay, so you did something. Is it the something where you want it, where we wanted you to go? If not, what's the gap still, right? You may have taken one step forward, but did you also take two steps back? And so organizing is a lot about thinking very holistically about the change that you are trying to affect and recognizing that it is a lot of work. Because I think one of the criticisms that I 
find myself thinking about coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement is that you've probably been able to see this too. A lot of the energy has dissipated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Right. And, you know, there were these big, um, these big social media campaigns that people rallied around, right? Like posting the left square. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, like, like the different, like, things that you can post on your Instagram story, which is great. But what happens after, right? Like, what happens after you do that? And I think organizing and thinking about yourself as an organizer is all about recognizing no matter whether, no matter whether or not you choose to engage, there will always be something to fight about. And knowing that there's always something to fight about, you also have to recognize that there's a lot of just front work involved, you know? Like, a lot of the work that goes into, like, electoral cycles is, like, calling and texting people, which is, we got a glimpse of that, right? With trying to call, like, and submit your comment for, like, a, you know, like a budget hearing. Yeah. Uh, or, like, sending a letter to your elected official. That's a glimpse of the, like, very intense work that goes into organizing. So I do want to make that distinction, okay. but it seems, I, but it seems like also like I think a lot of people and you nodded when I said this see that there's been kind of a drop off in engagement. Um, so I would also be curious to ask you if you have been thinking about that and the reasons for that. Definitely, I think it's so tough to grapple with, and even when I started to like get more involved, I think. And, and this is probably a lot of people, there was a hesitation of kind of making a statement, getting involved, saying like, yes, I'm in this and I'm in it for the long run because inertia is going to like take its course and the energy will kind of like wane a little bit. And if that's the inevitable course, then is it worth it to like put yourself out there and say like, all right, let's like keep this going. And even on social media now, you can see there's, there's like that push and pull of, hey, this, this movement is all over. Let's keep it going. Um, And then there are people who are like, okay, well, let's find more sustainable ways to do it. You don't have to be doing every single little thing. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that I grapple with, with racism or any sort of social justice movement where you feel like you want to be all in and you want to, you want to be in it, whatever that means. But also if you are in it, do you have to feel bad about not doing like every single little thing that you can do? Because there's a way to be perfect is that way realistic? Maybe not, but like there's always more that you can do, right? And for me, it's like, okay, where do I say that it's okay that I didn't do it? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard because I think the more you, well, I have two thoughts here. One is I think this year, whether it's like the pandemic giving people more time, right? And like there were no sports, so there was like nothing to watch on TV and there were no car people were able to mobilize and like, you know, corporate media was able to very specifically hone in on this. So I, I don't know what conditions led to so many people becoming activists and organizers for the first time over the last couple of months. Like, I don't know what the conditions are, but I do think this is the first time 
probably in history that so many people had the veil lifted in a very like sharp and uncomfortable way. And we probably learned more on our own in two weeks than we had throughout the entirety of high school, right? Learning about slavery and understanding what systemic racism means, yeah. which is, and that's like, and that's commentary on public education, but. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah, but, but because we've done that now, there's this opportunity to say, okay, well now we've mobilized a bunch of people in the way that we weren't able to before, because previously organizers and activists might've been seen as fringe, whereas now so many people have been brought into the fold. So how do you keep them engaged? And that's a question that I ask myself as well, because there is no shortage of things that you can involve yourself in, but also burnout is super real and mental health is so key. And also in the midst of a pandemic, you need to take care of yourself. But first and foremost, I, I took a huge step back in social media because I knew I was burned out. But I was like, it's fine. Like, I don't need to justify that I'm not doing this mm -hmm. to any because I know that I care about this and I know I'm going to care about the work that I do. So I think it comes down to like yourself right? It's, are you the kind of person who wants to know that you fought for something, right? Or are you okay with doing your nine to five and saying like, I donated my money and that's the way I'm going to help and be okay with that? Because I think it's really unfair to let people guilt trip you. Yeah. And it comes down to like, is this how you want to engage? Do you want to engage? Which I think the answer should be yes. Like, I can shame you for not wanting to engage, period. But then the how is up to you. Definitely. I think a lot of it comes down to, like, optics also, where yes. you want to be perceived as somebody who, like, really cares and is, like, posting on social media all the time and, like, doesn't let up at all. And I had this realization maybe a couple months ago where I was like, honestly, no one cares about my reputation as an activist. Like, if I think I'm doing okay, if I post once a day, or if I post once a week, or if I don't post at all about racism or feminism or whatever it is, the environment, as long as I know that I'm doing my part, like you said, it should be okay. And I had, I had the feeling that like, oh, people are going to judge me for, for like not doing my part. And there's all those posts floating around on social media of like, we see your silence. Like, I know that you didn't, you didn't post about it and you didn't speak out. And like, I get that. I, I, I feel like there is, there is a reason there's some good to be had with like a little bit of shame and guilt tripping. But at the same time, in my mind, I was like, okay, I'm not going to let it get to me nobody actually cares about my reputation of being active or not. Like, it's just on me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that right there, I wish I'm really glad you brought up, I think is the key difference between activism and organizing, right? Because mm -hmm. activism is like, you do this thing, it's big, it's flashy, and like, boom. Organizing is, you have to think about who you're talking to. You have to think about who your audience is, and then you have to meet them where they're at. If I'm on the phone, if I'm on the phone and I'm calling someone in Kansas, I'm going to try to talk to them about Bernie. I'm not going to be like, so Trump is racist. Uh -huh. <laughs> that's just, that's like, that's just not going to be your approach, right? And so I think the same, you have to do it for your, you have to look at that for yourself as well, which is, 
optics and branding and clout is such a big part of how we live our lives now. And that really matters to approximately zero people. It doesn't even matter for us. <laughs> and so to do a thing for this thing that doesn't matter, it's just like, why? I'm tired. Like, my back hurts. <laughs> my back hurts. Well, like in talking to people who may not have similar opinions as you, and this is a whole other conversation because I feel like in my immediate circles for the most part, and even familially, kind of, like most people I know share my viewpoints and I don't have to like convince them to to see the light for the most part. But Mm -hmm. what... Like, have you had any really successful or, like, super unsuccessful conversations in trying to, in conversing with people with different viewpoints? Yes, yeah. I would say the hardest and currently most unsuccessful conversation is one with my parents. Mm. And that's, you know, that's tricky. I think we started talking about this because my parents... Because I think my parents were like, their mentality was, specifically as it related to protesting and Black Lives Matter, they, they took the stance of, well, you know, Obama was president, or like Oprah is very successful, like why, why can't all Black people rise up in society? And my mom specifically was like, it is the, it is the responsibility of Black parents to educate their children. And I was like, okay, all parents want what's best for their kids, right? Like, you can't possibly believe that, like, Black parents just, just, like, yeah, just, like, send their kids out into the wild and, like, don't care about them at all. So then I was, like, okay, so then now I have to explain what it means to have something be systemic, right? I have to explain the concept of institutions to them, which I think that's, that's hard also because it's easier for me to do that in English than it is in Mandarin, so I just... <laughs> I'm just going to have to make you these, like, flow charts on PowerPoint <laughs> to show you that, you know, pol- like, defunding the police is step one. Step two is the criminal justice system, which is bigger, and they unfairly target Black and brown communities. Why is that? Let's look at the history. <laughs> but, it, but it's hard because I think my parents view themselves as working class, which is absolutely the case when they came here to the States. But they're not working class in the way that working class societies are working class. I was like, y'all are not living paycheck to paycheck. Like, you're not working yeah. class. Yeah. And it's hard to shake them of that because, because they grew up poor, right? They came here with nothing. They were able to succeed and build a life for themselves. And I try to make them recognize that they were able to do that. It's the whole, like, white privilege thing, right? Like, just because you have white privilege doesn't mean you don't suffer in your own way. But you need to that your skin color is not a barrier, um, which I think is also that's that's also a tricky conversation to have with my parents because like people are fucking racist, stage yeah. <laughs> and there is absolutely a, a a bamboo ceiling, and so trying to pick apart the nuances of that was really hard. I had to I had to I had to step away from the conversation and say. Like, we need to agree on some basic facts first. Let me send you some things to read. And then we can have this conversation again. 
was very and did they do that and did that help my mom well okay so my mom did she said she started looking at some of the resources and then she started talking to some of her black friends which I think also thankfully my parents have black friends okay (laughs) which I think is like a helpful starting point because it's like like you you might not take my word but you can take this thing that I gave you and you can talk to somebody else about it because you're probably gonna someone else more than you're gonna listen to me so I think they 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 understand more of the the systemicness of society now they see that a little bit more I think they still don't feel any of the nuances of what it and like understand how difficult it is to be black in America and also you know the difficulties of just like in the problems of U.S. history in general because they were never taught that um so we've kind of just we, we landed on it's fine for me to go protest if I go get myself tested on the reg. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I can understand how Asian parents would think that way. And especially with the protests, like yeah. I think my parents felt the same and they were like, yeah, you know, black lives matter. We understand. Um, that it's great that there's a movement, but, like, you don't go out there and, like, protest. Don't do that. There's a pandemic, which, you know, totally fair. Um, So I think, I feel like this has been, this has been common discourse, too, but, like, in Asian culture, it's very much, like, all right, well, we'll, like, keep to ourselves, like, oh, great, like, good job, you over there, like, I'll just, I'll just stay back and, and watch hmm which is very much the myth of the model minority right which is we are as collectively as Asians which also is like an all-encompassing term um but also exclusionary Asians are led to believe that if you work hard and you, you have this ethos of keeping your head down that you will be able to succeed because you know we we don't suffer many of the things that black and brown communities suffer but it's like but you don't see Asians in levels in positions of power right and so this idea of the model minority it's like yeah we're, we're there to make white people feel good about the fact that there is a group uh, there's a community of color that is able to succeed relatively so within American society and it's helpful for them to point to us and say look at all these Asians let's put mm-hmm. Doing. Look at their look at their like median income. Look at those big houses in Arcadia that they're able to buy, and so and that's 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 very detrimental to advancing racial justice for everybody. Yeah. Do you feel like it's that way for any person of color who has achieved some some level of high achievement that that somehow I don't know how to put this, but let's say like like Obama and Oprah that they're like held to this standard of like oh, okay well look at them they did it like how does that play into to kind of what we're talking about of like the model minority that's a good point um I'm not sure because on one hand I want to say if there is a path 
right? If these people were able to succeed and they are not the only ones in that field, although today Obama is the only one black president, right? But nonetheless, there are there are black congressmen, there's black there's um many black and brown um leaders and CEOs. It's like if there are people there, then that means that there is a defined path. On the flip side, if there is a defined path, then the proportion of people there should be proportionate to the percentage of that community within the entirety of the population, yeah. right? It would just be one or two people. And then so you then you start have then you start asking, okay, well then why is that? And then the the very cynical side of me is like, okay, well that's because in some way, shape, or form, race even even if you're black or brown, right, can sometimes serve as affirmative action to service again, like mm -hmm. the narrative that white people are trying to push. That's a very glass half empty. And, yeah, I get it. I mean, okay, my thought is I'm making a parallel to, I think something that happens a lot with, with like women where, mm -hmm and climb the ladder and we don't want to help bring other people up. Do you feel mm. that happens with people of color, not just Asians, who are like, hey, I made it to this top spot and yeah. you know, I'm sitting comfortable and now I don't feel like I need to help anymore? Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is very interesting. Um, I don't I can't say definitively what the answer is, but I think a nuance of that, which actually lends itself to our discussion, is class, which we never talk about and which I think should be talked about more within society. Because in a way, class is the thing that brings together like racism, sexism, whatever isms, right? Because if we ensure like equal economic opportunity for all, then we wouldn't be seeing these things manifesting itself in the workplace, right? Like we wouldn't be seeing, we wouldn't be thinking, talking about like, oh, like women need to be paid like equal pay, right? It's just like, we are missing these things right now. And that manifests itself within sexism, that manifests itself as the patriarchy. If we talk explicitly about class, which makes people uncomfortable because it's about money, yeah we would be able to have just a wider lens to look at society. And I think the thing with class is that be, even within the Asian community, right, there's a lot of racism and a lot of that racism is tied to just like foreign middle income countries yeah. within like diaspora, right? And I think that is very much the case across all cultures where it's not necessarily, maybe it's like, it, it's not necessarily that you don't want to help other people. It's maybe you only want to help a certain kind of people because you want your culture to be represented in the way that you are representing them. And that creates another layer of distinction there that only people within that culture recognizes. I'm thinking very specifically about how um, <laughs> a lot of my Black friends who went to Ivy Leagues just like, really did not like the attitudes that like other black people within the Ivy League exhibited because they thought it was very condescending. It was very, 
it was very like, I'm better than you and I'm God's gift to earth because I'm here and I made it despite all odds. Rather than having the perspective of, let me try to lift up everybody else around me because I am here and it took me, like it was fucking hard to get here. Mm -hmm. um, and they complain about that a lot. They're also women <laughs> talking about men. But they complain about that a lot, which is why I think it's really at the core a class issue. Yeah. That's really interesting. I also think like, what, where's the space? And this is kind of what brought me to my first question of like, what, what brought you to the path that you're on right now? Because mm -hmm. I'm going to bring this really broad, but as human beings, we're very selfish creatures right? Mm -hmm. like that's just, mm -hmm. it's just in our nature to look out for ourselves. Yes. And everybody is disadvantaged in some ways. Like nobody, even if you're like a white man, you could have like some personality that makes you disadvantaged in the workplace or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like it, it makes me think how we how we balance, I guess, advancing ourselves versus kind of lifting all boats, you know? Mm -hmm. And obviously there is a way to do both, but does one take away from the other? And mm -hmm. is there an argument there for people to say like, okay, well, I just want to, I, I want to do the best for me. Mm -hmm. And it means that it's going to take away from work on other people. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. I mean, the way that I, where my mind went to is this idea that capitalism cannot exist without socialism. We are seeing, we are absolutely seeing that right now, where everything that is fixing the problems presented by COVID-19 are socialist solutions. But Socialist, but socialism also cannot exist without capitalism because you need to invent, incentivize people to work. People need to feel like they have dignity. People need to feel like they're working towards something and people need to feel like they're doing it on their own. And so it's really interesting because I think so much of this pandemic is showing us that humans actually need each other. We deeply crave human connection and we need that in order to thrive and survive at the same time. What does, what does that mean in terms of how we grow as a country? And I think it, it goes back to policy for me, progressive policies, because if you want to empower individuals to achieve their greatest potential, then what aspects of like Maslow's hierarchy can the government provide for them such that they are able to get to that point of self-actualization, right? Like, if you can, if you can have like a housing guarantee, if you can have universal healthcare, if you can have free education, right? Not just K through 12, K through 16, then you're effectively, even though these are very socialist policies, you're effectively investing in every single citizen to then go out and be more productive, right? Which yields in like a neoliberal capitalist sense, greater yields for your economy. Right? Like everyone's productivity levels are going to go up. They're not going to be stressed out thinking about like, how am I going to put my kid through education? The government covers that. Then everything that they're getting from work, they reinvest into themselves or the economy. So for me, that's kind of the way to like 
the like rising tide lifts all boats, but also you're empowering individuals because then individuals still have the latitude to work as hard or not as hard as they want to. And you can still have this meritocratic system, which even though we don't exist in a meritocracy, but you, you, people still get what they deserve while you account for the basic needs for all people. That's why I think progressive policies are so important because it brings together those two trains of thought, which I think is so important to have in mind, right? And which is why like the term democratic socialism has come into vogue as of late because more and more people are realizing that contradictions of capitalism, right? Where, where you try to squeeze every ounce of labor from a human and that's like, like, you are like your value comes from the work that you do but if you were to automate everything then that work no longer becomes valuable which is like inherently a paradox first of all i think you should run for president (laughs) (laughs) okay like i want to i'm going to bring this back to kind of like my first question And you can tell, like, I'm just, I'm trying to tease out a story here, because I feel like in the thoughts going through my mind right now is, like, how do I get there? You know, Mm. like, how can I, like, how has it taken us, the country, so long to come up with these types of ideas, or for, or really for these types of ideas to reach a little bit more of the mainstream, and I don't think it's super mainstream right now. Yeah. But I'm I'm curious to know like your personal journey of like how you've gotten to this level of thinking from from like the, what you said earlier of like caring for the environment and things like that. And I want to touch upon the fact that you said like oh, you know, coming from similar backgrounds even like people who you grew up around, you notice that like your friend left the left the faucet on and that was something that was like very weird to you or like didn't make sense where where did your path diverge i think the answer that i think is the right one is not going to be an answer you anticipate because i think the answer comes down to it comes down to ego Mm. And it comes down to the fact that, it comes down to how I was raised, which is, it's very Asian though, right? Because I'm sure you can relate to this, um, in which Asian households uh, very much view you as a kid tied to what you do. Like the grades that you got in school, the extracurriculars that you were doing, um, and who you are as a person is not differentiated from these things that you are accomplished in and these skills that you have. This is very much the case in my household. And so it's, if I wanted my parents to pay attention to me, I needed to do something extraordinary. I couldn't be normal. I couldn't just be like, I like got good grades, which I like, only sometimes because I wasn't actually great at school, right? Like, I, I think the way my mind works 
and like the way I connect the dots is not how you learn in America because it's all about like you take these AP classes and you take the SAT prep and then you go to a college and it's just like you check all of these different boxes where I'm I think very much in the abstract and so for me it's like in the absence of being able to get really good grades I, I looked for other ways to excel and the other ways that I could excel were extracurriculars and the way I differentiated myself in like what I believed in and how I expressed that in my day to day. And so I think it very much started off as a way to just like get my parents' attention. Somewhere along the way, I think it became intertwined with my ego of like, I am doing this thing for external praise and validation. Um, but also, I like this thing that I'm doing now. And maybe the external praise and validation piece will always be there. And maybe, like, I probably have to disentangle this in therapy. Like, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and maybe that's unhealthy, but it's hard for me to say anymore because it is so core to who I am. Yeah. But I actually think that's how it started. That is so fascinating. It's funny because, like, you're right. I mean, it's not really an answer that you would expect. But now that you say that, like, it makes it makes perfect sense. You know, yes. we're all human. I don't, I don't know. This is maybe the like cynical side of me. I don't know if we're like necessarily all that altruistic mm-hmm. naturally. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to see where that comes from. And now it's such like a core part of your identity that you don't even know really what that mesh of like intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation is Mm -hmm. but huh that that's interesting yeah yeah I I mean it's I think the the short answer of that is it's a combination of both nature and nurture Mm -hmm. right um but the longer answer becomes more complicated and it, it is it's interesting to think about, right? And it's interesting to think about how like very successful politicians or like philosophers and thinkers might have been raised. Because I think in, in, if, you, if you grow up with complete privilege, then you, which, is, which actually goes back to like Black Lives Matter movement and like everything that's going on, then you're not forced to, conf- you're not forced to confront with the things in society that are uncomfortable mm-hmm. because you don't need to right you don't need to think about that right if you if everything is given to you if you have a path like if you are like fully well loved then you live your path and then you're just like very happy <laughs> whereas I think it's if you are presented with challenges then how do you adapt to those challenges and then how does that inform who you are yeah what and what comes out of that yeah that's so interesting. And I'm like gonna tell a story that is like somewhere related to that story that you told in the beginning about you learning about climate change and having auditoriums about this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I I don't wanna say I've been like super environmentalist for many years, um, but my earliest memories of it was coming from when I was a kid. And I also have a similar story about how I learned about how money worked. But um, I was, I was like at my house and I left my room 
and my mom goes, oh, Van, turn off the lights. And I was mm. like, okay, sure. Why would I do that? Like, then when I go back, they're already on. And my mom's <laughs> like, well, the lights are using electricity. We have to pay for that, you know? And I was like, what? We have no- <laughs> I was like, it doesn't just like come out of the walls. <laughs> And she was like, no. And that flipped a huge switch for me. And maybe this is just like my Asian genes, but I was like, money saving? I'm turning off every single light. And I got into the habit of like before when my mom would call me down for dinner, I would turn off my light. I would go to my brother's room and turn off his light because he was terrible at it. Like go to my parents' room, make sure their bathroom lights are off. Like all the lights upstairs would be off. And a couple days later, I went over to my friend's house and like she left her light on before going to dinner. And I was like, hey, dude, like turn off the lights. You know, that costs money, right? You know, it doesn't just come out of the walls. And she was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And she had no idea either. And like, that was, I don't know why that made such a big impact on me. And like only, only much later did I learn like the actual environmental impacts of Mm -hmm. what was happening and like why, why that like, it kind of clicked a little bit more and now I have a bigger reason to do it. But it really started off as like a selfish like, oh, I'm going to save like my family money, which I don't know how much that would save. Now I see electricity bills and they're not that expensive. And I'm like, okay, okay, mom, (laughs) really okay. It could have, it would have been fine, but. (laughs) Oh my God, that's so funny. (laughs) It doesn't just come out of the wall. I really thought that. (laughs) But I think like that's such a powerful story, right? Because to me, it illustrates two things. One, the importance of meeting people where they're at. Because if I'm, if your mom were to tell you about like climate, you probably would have, it, that's just so much more abstract than like it's saving money. Yep. And two, the saving money part speaks to how like in order to incentivize people, they need to have the like short-term tangible benefits that they see right in front of them. Yeah. Which, which is why climate is kind of a tricky topic at least in the way that it's discussed i think in society climate is very abstract and people don't understand how it affects them right if they're like not that people go around thinking about maslow's hierarchy of needs but it's like that is so far and beyond like beyond self-actualization that people don't really commit the time to think about it but actually climate fucking affects the very bottom like your survival right And so it's just like, how can we change the discourse so that people understand, like, if it gets hotter in LA, your AC bills are 100% going to go up. And we want to avoid that, which is why we need to vote for progressive politicians. It's like, that's the kind of message we should be putting out there, Mm -hmm. not rising sea levels in Florida or wherever. Yeah, because it doesn't directly impact you. Yeah, climate is a really, really tricky one to talk about. But also the education around how to be how to be better at climate change, honestly, is really, 
really awful. And I remember seeing your like Instagram stories maybe a couple months or weeks ago, and you had like facts about climate change and like how to respond oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and things like that, which are amazing. And like a couple years ago when I was doing my master's, I wanted to do my thesis on like somewhat within like the recycling upcycling realm and so I learned a lot about that kind of stuff but yeah. nobody knows how to recycle and also recycling here is awful yeah no one really yeah. knows how it works no matter how much research you do yeah it, it, it actually blows my mind because I think because the last place I lived like really permanently was SF where compost bins were the norm which whereas now that I'm back here in LA it is not the norm here. Composting is not really a thing here that I've been able to see. You don't get like the landfill recycling compost waste diversion bins the way you would at any like any random restaurant like Suvla, whatever in San Francisco, which is which is like mind boggling to me. Um, but also. Um, yeah, so that's one point. The second point is I always get stories from my friends that are like, today I saw that someone threw a glass container into the compost and it really infuriated me. So I took it out and I thought you would appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, yeah, how did people, how did someone think it was okay to throw a glass container into the compost bin? That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Well, at work, not at my previous job, like, I would always tell my coworkers, like, oh, no, 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 that one doesn't go in compost. Or, like, no, you can't actually recycle that. Like, don't put it in there. Like, this one actually has to be trash and whatnot. And there's just so little education. And also, mm -hmm. there's, like, no, I mean, there's no consequence for doing it wrong. Or they, yeah. like, there's no immediate consequence, which kind of goes back to what you were saying. But if you go to like other countries like Korea for example I don't know if you've seen their whole like waste management system but mm -hmm. it's amazing and it's probably a little bit more than what normal people would tolerate but everybody there separates everything there's like six mm -hmm. or seven different bins that you go to and separate out all of your stuff and the rest of it goes to the trash and I think you have to pay for your trash by weight so if you don't separate oh, it so if you don't separate it right and it, if you're lazy and everything goes to the trash you got to pay more for it yeah 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 oh that's so interesting I think actually that's the case in Germany as well where it's like there's like five million bins that you gotta sort your own shit into um which, I mean, yeah, it speaks a lot to just the education bit, because if it's just fully ingrained into society, then it's not even something you have to think about. So I was actually going to ask how you learned, because recycling is not really a thing that's taught here. No. Um, I just... Here, though. Yeah. I, I took an interest to it. I mean, growing up in Shanghai, I didn't know anything about it, so that didn't have to do with it. But um, when I was in London, I learn I took an interest to it and I just started learning more about it and like looking into it on my own and I was like wow I didn't know any of this before I didn't know that like you couldn't recycle certain things I didn't know that you had to clean stuff before you put it in and if you find things that are not 
that are not in the whole category of recyclables, then the whole thing goes to waste. And I was like, how come more people don't know about this? At the same time, when when the collective doesn't know about it, like at work, I was like, oh God, like, it, am I really making a dent? Because nobody seems to know anything. And like, I can recycle everything and somebody's gonna throw their tin foil in and like, then the whole thing is gonna be gone. Yes, yes. I know recycling is one of those things where it's the, well, I mean, and you know all about how like China refuses to take the US's recyclables mm-hmm. and more, right? And it's like knowing that and knowing how like just like a loose straw can just like contaminate the whole thing. It, it really does call into question, am I really making a difference? But then you just have to look upstream and be like, well, I just got to buy less. Yeah. Which is also not the, 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 like, the ethos of America. Absolutely not. Oh my gosh. And I've been, I've been inspired by many people, yourself included, to, like, really wean off my, like, Amazon consumption. Mm-hmm. Like, the packaging in itself and also just, like, how the business practices are just awful. But it's, it's really difficult because... Mm-hmm. America just makes it so easy to be a wasteful person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're like encouraged. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you really are. You really are. It's so difficult to not do that. And it calls to the whole, it calls to the conversation like fatigue. And we could talk about fatigue of like so many things, but like it's, I don't know why, like things are just designed to not be good for the world <laughs> in a lot I know. I know I know and it's and it's 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 not just like one aspect of it it's like many it's yeah. like like many industries and it all coalesces and it's all bad and you're like well where do I where do I fucking begin <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah for sure I like my social justice radar turned on in college, I want to say, like before mm-hmm. that, I want to say I didn't, I didn't really know, I didn't really care about social justice in general. I didn't think it was like super relevant to me because I've grown up as a very privileged person all my life. But when that radar turned on, I was like, I don't even know what to do because everything is wrong. <laughs> like everything is wrong with the world. All the systems are broken. And like you can do your one part in one in one piece of it, but if everything else is broken, then this is still broken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because I it, it sounds weird to say this, but I really don't think my social justice anything was activated until until grad school. Because I had I had focus areas and had things that I cared about and in in and in college I was the recycling girl because I I like ran the like tailgate waste diversion practices at USC I don't know if you remember seeing that and and like in in high school like whenever we needed to make like speeches in class I was like single use plastic is bad but but in terms of thinking very critically about institutions and organizations and how these pieces come together I really don't think that part of my brain was activated until 
grad school and it's 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 ongoing right because it's just the more you peel off at understanding how society fits together and comes together the more you're like ooh, this is really this is this is this is a tough issue to tackle it's the whole fatigue thing like like i'll give you an example like um we've been seeing so much about arresting the cops that killed Breonna Taylor, right? That's like the mantra of the year almost. Mm -hmm. It's been the mantra of social media for the past couple of months, certainly. But it depends on how the police report was written. And if there is nothing there, then no matter how much public pressure you put on the department, it's not going to happen because there's, a, there's like another deeper systemic thing there that is the blocker mm -hmm. and in the absence of knowing that you're kind of just like it's easy to affect change or like why isn't this thing happening but you have to go one step below and look at the actual legal system mm -hmm. right the rules and the way things need to be done and then that that that's hard because it's kind of like the difference between defunding police and thinking very critically about di dismantling our, our criminal justice system where I think I drew a flow chart on Instagram where it's like, if you defund police, then like fewer people will leak through and be prosecuted and like be given unfair sentences. And that is a whole thing that needs to be addressed also, but maybe you can slow the trickle of people that's getting put into the system, but you still gotta address the system. Mm -hmm. And the system is where it gets tricky because that's like legislation and laws and bills in the very fabric that holds our society together. And, and that's, and thinking about how to change that is like, I don't even know where to begin. And it's depressing to think about because you're like, well, then what's the point actually, if there are legal, like literal legal barriers? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. And it has been very depressing to think about, but also, I don't know, we're, we're learning so much, and I think the, the, the whole collective is learning so much, and just having the veil lifted of, of not just looking at the surface level, but looking at the whole system, and I'm sure, I mean, like, that has to count for something, that everyone is being a little bit more educated, on how things are and like not just taking everything at surface level. I've even mm -hmm. like, I've even posted some things on Instagram where it's like, okay, X, Y, and Z business, like do these awful practices. And then I get, I get DMs back of like, oh, what were the sources for this? Like, I don't actually, I don't want to like cancel this random business just because there was an Instagram post. And I was like, wow. That's amazing, like, that that is a question that people are asking, because I think we we want to take the easy route of just being like, all right, well, screw that business, like, I'll just, I'll just believe everything, but I think we're getting to, like, a more critical point of view, which is great, which is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think, I think we, yeah, because the bill has been lifted now, and it, it, it is hard to be comfortable with going back to the way things were before, right? And this is, and this is, I think, both on a micro level, in micro level in terms of like your day to day and how you engage, but broadly thinking about like 
like 2020 elections, right? That's like many steps up, but there were so many calls when, you know, it was kind of like, when it was just like, a, just accepted that Biden was going to be the de facto candidate, that things would go back to normal. And it's like, no, but things cannot go back to normal mm -hmm. because communities were hurting then too. We need to address that. And now the pandemic has added another layer on top of that, where it's like, there is no normal anymore. We have to, re we have to completely reconceptualize society because there's no way not to do that, right? To do that would be almost like committing, a, that, like that would be negligent, right? To say like, oh, we'll just go back to the way things were, like just give everybody a vaccine and like, that's it. Yeah. And so I, I do think 2020 is in this like very, it, this is a year of reckoning and I am, I'm cautiously optimistic about what's, how we're going to come out mm -hmm. at the end of all of this, whether that's 2021 or 2022 or beyond, we don't really know at this point because like we've seen that sustained public pressure and engagement can bring about change, right? Like the, like Minnesota police department is like a city council is like bringing forth a motion to consider defunding the police entirely. Yeah. Right. Uh, New York city, even though it was just a little bit of like accounting magic, they like diverted a billion away from the like, like NYPD budget, but people are looking now. Right. And people saw that even though that's what they said, it was just some accounting magic underneath, you know, like mm -hmm. whatever. And people called them out on that. And like, same in LA, it's like, we're going to take away 150 million. People are like, that's not enough. That's not enough. Yeah. That's like very, that's very little, just a fraction. Doesn't even move the graph very much at all. If you were to be. Yeah, exactly. You're like, I still have to scroll like yeah. a million times to get <laughs> so so I think you're right right like I, I think I think things are changing absolutely for the better and that is very hopeful but also like even if things weren't changing and you weren't even sure whether or not the thing that you're doing is going to make a difference it can come down to a very selfish reason of I'm doing this so that at the end of the day, I feel better and I feel like I did something. Even if you don't know if it's going to lead to something, it can be as selfish as that. Yeah. And I think that's reason enough, right? For people just to like try to move things along. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that we, we maybe think too much about ourselves <laughs> and like, Am I doing it for the right reasons, etc.? If it makes you feel better and it's advancing society in some way, that's okay. It's okay that you feel better about it. <laughs> yeah. It's okay for you to feel good about yourself. You know, yeah. give yourself a little pat on the back. I know it's like it's so wild that people are like and you donated and it was because you wanted to be known that you were a philanthropist you did it for the wrong reasons and I'm like I'm happy to take it's this fine step. it's like yeah keep the money coming it's okay <laughs> it's it's so it's like so odd and I don't I actually don't know where that mentality comes from but it really goes against like the like like individualism and like the like the giving back um aspects of society so I'm kind of just like I don't know why I shame people for that <laughs> yeah totally 
Okay, another thing that I wanted to talk about, and this gets like a little dicey because I know that there's rhetoric around like, don't compare racist struggles to like anything else because it's not, it's not an apples to apples comparison. The experience mm-hmm. is very different. But like, mm-hmm. I found it very helpful to think about racism in relation or in parallel to like feminism or like even the even the blend of like white feminism that I have grown up on yeah and I watched one of your this is like kind of kind of a mixed question or mixed conversation I watched one of your IGTVs recently or maybe it was like maybe it was a while ago now where you said you've noticed that it has been primarily your female friends who have <laughs> yeah. and like just generally speaking and I totally feel the same like I I tend to see more females speaking out about all sorts of social justice issues more often than males why why do you think that is yeah it's so interesting (laughs) I think it is I think it's uh several pronged one absolutely the privilege aspect of it because it's like you know what it feels like to be discriminated against and you know what it feels like to be like there's a group of guys walking towards me are they gonna say anything about my appearance do I have to like where do I look? Do I look straight ahead? Do I look on the ground? Do I look to the side? Do I cross the street? Right? It's like, so the tension is there and you feel it and it is very real. And so I think that's absolutely like right to tap into that because it's just like, like, like women and, and people who pass for women of the world, right? Who are like female passing, like unites, like, you know, the struggle. It is very, very hard. Um, the other side of it is also, I think, clout and brand, <laughs> and, uh, okay. which is like, okay, okay, all right, like, whatever it takes to get you to that point, but it's like the, you know, like, I think, generally speaking, women care more about their social media presence, they care a little bit more about their brand, it, it's almost like, you know how... <laughs> You know how, like, if you go out with a group of girls or even with one other girls, you're going to be like, okay, what am I going to wear, right? And it's gonna, it, there's, it, there's this whole dance of, like, I got to look really good. And it's not because you're trying to impress your friend, even, yeah. um, or you're trying to impress the world, but it's, like, there is the vibe, and you got to fit the vibe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so I think, so, yeah, so I think that's a little bit of, both I think also like women are just so conditioned to be the emotional caretakers of the world that and maybe this comes down to like just the way society is structured and gender roles but that they feel like they it is their duty to speak up right there is they they feel this duty to speak out against injustice to try to do something about it and that is again like nature or nurture I'm not sure but it has now become innate yeah for sure oh, yeah fascinating your second point about clout and brand I didn't even think about that but I think that's so true I definitely think that has to do with it um wasn't wasn't my thir- first thought but that is interesting 
Mm-hmm. Some of my thoughts on like comparing, like comparing feminism to racism, it it really helps me understand the whole like movement for Black Lives a little bit more, just because I mean I've been obviously I've been a lot more connected to the feminist movement than I have um, of the movement for Black Lives. So thinking about all of the like conversation that's been happening in the past like couple months one of the things that I thought about was like self-education right like Mm -hmm. don't put it on black folks to educate you go out and seek your own education Mm -hmm. and you know it made sense to me I was like okay yeah like we shouldn't we shouldn't like put it on them we should go out and educate ourselves when Mm -hmm. I thought about it in parallel to feminism that has been something that has frustrated me so much about like why don't men understand first of all they don't understand because you talk about you talk to them about certain things and they're like you can just see issues like (laughs) over their head or it's like that that blank look of like oh I have literally never thought about this before I've literally never had that concern or that thought cross my mind and I'm like what like, okay, I understand, but I'm telling you, like, think about it right now and, and talk to me about it. Like, I'll give you an example. The other day, I read this article on, like, this woman's fertility journey, and she was just, like, she's a little bit older, and she was having trouble having kids, um, and, like, you see her go through, like, rounds of IVF and, like, different towards different types of fertility treatments. And I was like, oh, this is so interesting. And that's just something that, like, I will read up on just as a personal interest. And, like, I have taken to, like, saving those things and then, like, sharing them out to other males because I'm like, this is something that you should know. But a couple years ago, I was like, why don't they do this themselves? Why don't they just educate and like learn about these things? Yeah. Uh, But then obviously with the whole Black Lives Matter movement, I was like, oh, I didn't educate myself on on things that weren't necessarily relevant to me at the time. So I see Mm -hmm. both sides now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I also see both sides because I think it's like, on one hand, I've talked about this before, if only women ever talked about women's issues, then it just solely becomes the domain of the women, right? Like, like it's like women then only have expertise in this one area and like, doesn't matter what they say outside of that, it's that the, the fact that they're saying anything at all that's problematic, right? So just having, having these spheres is, is highly problematic. But on the other hand, it's like, yeah, like we have a sphere here of women's issues but because it's women's issues, men literally never have to think about that. They don't even know that it exists. They don't know the struggles. They don't, <laughs> they don't know the pain points. They didn't even know this was like a thing that they could even engage on. And so then it's, then it's your responsibility, if you feel up to it, to take it to them. Because then again, I think my motto for the year is just like, you got to meet people where they're at. You have to bring it to them. You have to give it to them also in a way that is digestible to them. Yeah. I, that's, that's, that was my thought process for like a number of years. I was like, okay, I will just be the one to like bring this to you and like Mm -hmm. have a discussion, do a little bit of education. Cause like, Mm -hmm. I mean, 
ignorance is its own problem, but like, like willful ignorance is the problem, right? But if you're just ignorant and you just don't know any better, like I, I'll give you a pass. And I think it's only recently where I was like frustrated because of this whole conversation around self-education that I was like, huh, why don't dudes self-educate about women's issues? <laughs> Like, it is exhausting having to educate people. <laughs> it is. It is. It is so tiring having to educate people. But then you're like, if I don't do it, will they do it? And it's, does that make it worth it for me? Yeah. 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 And I think it comes back to, like, the individual. Like, what are you comfortable doing? Like, can you take it on? And I guess for the most part, I've my answer has been like, yeah, okay, I can do it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then this is also like, this is exactly why allyship is so important, right? Because of the whole sphere thing where it's like, if someone talking about this issue within the sphere is only going to be seen as like, oh, that's just like another person talking about it. Mm -hmm. Versus if a man were to say, fertility is a huge issue. Like that's something that women like, you know, like that places undue burden on the woman and mm -hmm. like the government needs to like, I don't know, like, like fund it more or something. Yeah. Right. Like, like more men just like started speaking for Planned Parenthood, that would totally change the game. Yeah. <laughs> would totally change the fucking game. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think for men in particular, it's hard. Or like the more privilege you have, the harder it is to to get involved because I see the argument of like it's not my it's not my fight. It's not yeah my place to do something like mm -hmm. as a woman of color like you have I have something to like kind of latch on to to say okay yeah. well maybe it's not maybe I would have thought it's not my fight for Black Lives Matter but um, I can relate to the women's movement so like okay I get it uh, maybe I should be speaking out more here but yeah. the more privilege you have the less you have something to latch on to to say like okay maybe I should get involved because then maybe nothing is your fight, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think there is also an element of toxic masculinity in this, which which is just like, which is awful, right? And I was I was thinking about this recently. Like, I I would much rather be an Asian woman than an Asian man. I would much rather be a white man than a white woman. Mm -hmm. I think I would much rather be a black woman than a black man. Although that one is really hard. That one's it, hard. That one's really tough. Because it fucking sucks to be black in America. Yeah. Um, and it, it's the way masculinity and toxic masculinity can shape identities. And that, like, that's, that just sucks. It really does. It yeah. really does. Yeah, I think toxic masculinity definitely doesn't get talked about as much because we, we're, the feminist movement the the forefront is like women's advancement yeah and not necessarily about toxic masculinity which is very which is very interrelated mm -hmm. so, yeah mm -hmm. i think that is something that that we should talk about more so that more guys can get behind it yeah yeah it, it absolutely and it's just like it's it's just it's hard to broach also because it requires you opening yourself up to a level of comfort with yourself and your audience this is like yeah this is like it's hard to be a man and these are the things that I go through and you also have to rec you also need that person to recognize that right because it's like 
Do you recognize it in yourself? Can you name it? Can you talk about it? And then can you do something about it? And most times people don't even touch that first part. Like they don't even know like what they're going through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people don't know that like, oh, I feel, I feel shame about this for a certain reason. It's just like, nope, not yeah. touch it. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to pivot. I'm going to do work now because yeah. <laughs> that's how I cope. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. Okay. I feel like we could go on forever and we would have so much to talk about and so many more like little tangents to go off of and things to relate to. But uh, I feel like this is a good stopping point. So thanks so much, Leslie. This is such a good, this is such a great conversation. Let's do it again sometime and we can talk about all of those other things. That's what I was going to say. Um, I feel like, well, also like because of the pandemic, I'm like, I need to talk to people and like who are all the friends that I enjoy talking with. But it's just more and more I find that I like am seeking out conversations like these. It's and it's and it goes back to the like, what is normal versus what is the new normal? It's like, I don't need to talk about buying things anymore. Like I still can. Yeah. But there are so many more interesting things that you can talk to people about. And you're definitely someone who thinks about that on the reg. So yeah, let's do this again. Yay. Yes, we will. Okay. Well, thanks, Leslie. Thanks again. Yes. Thank you for having me. I'll talk to you soon.